0: So Romans 13 is on page 804. Submission to the authorities. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. (coughs) This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Love, for the day is near. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this understanding the present time the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed the night is nearly over the day is almost here so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light let us behave decently as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and debauchery not in dissension and jealousy rather clothe yourselves with the lord of jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature.
1: Okay, let us um, pray and then we'll get stuck into Romans chapter 13. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we share together now. Thank you we have an opportunity where we can uh, dwell on your word and try to understand it better, and we pray for your help to be uh, responding well to it, that we might uh, fear you and and uh, take these things seriously now and put them into action. So we pray for your help in that process. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've heard of the saying that says, uh, Christians can be too heavily minded to be of any earthly use. I've heard that said a few times and people saying it in, an, in exasperated ways. Oh, Johnny, he's just such a heavenly minded person, but he's of no earthly use. And I'm just not sure that that's actually biblical Christianity. I think the, uh, the kind of message that we're getting today, as Scott said, the, the whole Bible's practical, but this seems to be a part of the Bible where we're seeing how it applies in the world, in relation to each other and in how we behave. And I think uh, we see that God wants us to be living lives which live out his intentions for us, that we don't just have uh, pious thought bubbles as Christians, we've got to put our faith into action in the way that we live. And so we're going to look at how we relate uh, to God in relation to the world, in the governments, each other and in our behaviour. Now the context for these uh, verses we're looking at in Romans chapter 13, uh, at a time when Paul wrote, he didn't have a a democracy, a, a, a society like we live in. He lived in the time of the Roman Empire when the the governing empor, emperor, before he wrote, was someone called Claudius. We see that in Acts chapter 18. Claudius is an emperor who expels the Jews from Rome. But later on, uh, Claudius moved out of power and During Paul's missionary journey, his third one, around AD 57, Paul probably wrote from Corinth, around that time when Paul was writing, there was another emperor ruling the Roman Empire called Nero. Apparently, his first half of his reign was a lot better than his second half. Uh, The first half of his reign, he worked with a governor called Seneca, who helped bring out some good reforms. And it seems to be around that time that Paul's writing these things about Christians being subject to authorities. Nero's second half of his reign wasn't so fantastic. Uh, Church history reports that Peter and Paul were both uh, put to death by Nero and that there was a Neronian persecution against multitudes of Christians uh, as he blamed them for the fire in Rome, which just sounds disastrous. But at this point in the story... Uh, The first thing we're learning from Romans 13 is that Christians, and all people, have a responsibility towards the governing authorities, or as I've put it in the sermon outline, the state. And the reason that Christians are to submit to governing authorities is because God has established them. He's established the governing authorities. Now, this is, this is not a new theology that's uh, coming up in the Bible. It, it's actually building on things that have been taught in the Old Testament. Uh, we read in Proverbs that by me, this is God, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles, all who rule on earth. In Daniel, we read, the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms on earth and he gives them to anyone he wishes so this is the sense that even back in the old testament uh, this is nothing new god's sovereign over all he puts the rules in place jesus picks up on the same sort of thing when he's um dealing with Pilate. in john chapter 19 he says you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above and so even Pilate, although he's got some power Uh, Jesus understands that that's because God's sovereign and puts rulers in place. And so the authorities that exist do so because they exist under the sovereign hand of God, good rulers and not-so-good rulers. And so from the outset, Paul lays it on the conscience of Christians to acknowledge that God puts rulers in place and they're under his hand. Now, before we get into more interesting discussions about when it might be an exception to the rule to to actually uh, take a stand against governments, we've got to feel the tone of this passage. And we see that it's balanced towards a very positive approach to governments. The idea is summarised in verse 4, if you're having a look there. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. And so, Paul's teaching us not to be rebellious Towards them, In verse 1, Paul reminds us that all people should submit or be subject to the governing authorities because God's established them. That's the first point. Secondly, there's another reason given that rebelling against them is rebelling against what God's put in place. And so, that wouldn't be right. Furthermore, there's consequences in verse 2. Those who rebel bring judgment upon themselves. And that's expanded in verse 4. So we have a look, it says, For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. This is the phobos word, this is the phobia word. Uh, For he does not bear the sword for nothing. These governing authorities are described as God's servant or ministers. An agent of wrath or an avenger for wrath on the one practising evil an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And that's one of the broad functions of the governing authorities, is to hand out punishments to reduce people taking the law into their own hands. It's to reduce things like anarchy, which is lawlessness. If you want to uh, think about what a society that does not have any ruling authorities in place, uh, think of when I was growing up, there was a a place called... um, well, there still is. It's Beirut in Lebanon when there was a war there. The reporters described it as anarchy. I didn't know what that meant when I was a kid, so I asked mum and it was, it's lawlessness. That was my introduction and it didn't look great. Today, people quote places like Somalia where, you know, that's an example of lawlessness. The authority does the work that God wants it to do and that is to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And Paul concludes in verse 5, Therefore... It is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky because uh, this passage doesn't say everything we'd like to say about how we react to governing authorities, particularly if they start to drop the ball. Uh, Some have noted that since their ruling and their authority comes from God, they must rule in a way that's consistent with God's justice. Okay, if they're coming from God in their in their authority to rule, they should be ruling in a way that's consistent with God's justice. And so, some have argued that Romans thirteen is a text that demands obedience to what is right and never to what is wrong. That the governing authority should be commanding what's right, not what's wrong, inconsistent with God. There's a lot that could be said on this topic. But one area where we can see that uh, christians may well dissent from the governing authorities is with respect to the gospel going out because we know from god's word that it's god's will that the gospel is proclaimed in all the earth that it does go out but the governing authorities aren't always keen for that to happen now there's an example in acts chapter 4 where we see something along these lines that's it's actually the Jewish Sanhedrin which is taking a role of authority. It's not the same as the state altogether. Uh, but in in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been proclaiming the news about salvation that's found in Christ, salvation from sin, and the Sanhedrin call them in. In chapter 4 verse 18 we read, Then the Sanhedrin called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And so Peter's making the point there that when it comes to the crunch, we've got to be seeking to obey God above all and then obey the authorities. Now, this doesn't say everything about all the times when Christians should think about dissenting. But the tone and the, and the, the sense of this passage is, is clear enough. Governing authorities are there for our good. Verse 4. We're not called to be revolutionaries, but to be those who submit to them. And we're not called to take the law into our own hands and take revenge. We've got to trust God with the authorities that he's put in place for that to happen. Now, in our society, at times, um, in our tall poppy syndrome society, uh, it doesn't just limit itself to uh, picking on people who are trying to get ahead, but we've got a sceptical attitude to authority sometimes in Australia. That's, that's something that I've noticed. Uh, even when I was a teacher and I talked to the young people about the police, the kids had really bad attitudes towards the police, as if, as if the police were the enemy. Um, but in our context... Police are governing authorities, servants to do us good. That's what God's Word would say about them. Um, They don't so much wield the sword these days. I was having a bit of a joke earlier that they wield capsicum spray instead, uh, or a Glock pistol. But we don't need to be frightened of them. We just need to submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also for conscience sake. Our consciences tell us what is the right thing to do and what the wrong thing to do is. We only need to be frightened of them if we start to get out of hand. If we you know, decided we want to make a career in armed robbery or something like that, then the opposite's going to be true. We should be frightened of the, the capsicum spray. But if we're in a situation where we need help, where we might be looking for justice, we've got to trust that God's put the police there for our good to go to, to get some justice if we can. And that can hopefully prevent our society from becoming lawless, dipping into anarchy, and as they say, going to the pack. We don't want that. Now, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to seek help from the police on an issue of justice to be resolved. My family and I were at the... This is the Port Macquarie context, just to help draw you in. Uh, I was down at the local carnival down at Westport Park, and a fracas broke out amongst some... Naughty teenagers. They were getting a bit rough and in their argy-bargy, which happened pretty fast and burned out fairly fast as well, um, a teenage girl became the victim of an assault at that time. Now I talked with my family about the right thing to do and we decided it probably wasn't to get my big heavy dad and a baseball bat to go and settle things. Did I mention that my dad was heavy? Yes, he was, and uh, he probably could have settled things. But the right thing to do was to go and talk to the police. And so that's what we did. And when I spoke to the police about this scenario and the justice that might need to be uh, hopefully resolved and achieved, um, they mentioned that they were aware of it, but that I was the only guy who was prepared to make a statement. Now, I can tell you now, I'm not the hero in the story, that's for sure. But God is the hero because he's the one who's instituted the authorities for our good to help bring about justice, not bring about a situation where there's revenge. And just so that I don't leave you hanging, uh, the girl in that story decided not to press charges. So even though I was willing to make a statement, uh, it didn't seem that justice was done. She had to also participate in that process as well. So the conditions were right to get some justice, but she didn't go through that process. But I think the spirit of this passage is to say that's that's how we should think of the authorities. We should go through uh, what God's provided and trust him with the results there. Well, the next thing that Paul talks about is true heavenly mindedness. Uh, when it comes to paying tax. Now, here's an exciting topic, folks, so (laughs) don't you start nodding off now. Uh, Let's have a look at uh, verses 6 and 7. God gives us reasons to pay tax in verses 6 and 7. "'This is why you also pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes.' If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Now, just before I get back onto my sermon sheet here, with this revenue, um, respect, then respect, honour, then honour, in Paul's society there was a patron-client arrangement where sometimes uh, people had to give, for example, if somebody died, they had to give some of their will, uh, their land over to a, a patron or something like that. And if if they didn't actually give some money to the emperor, uh, then the emperor at times brought in these rules for the ungrateful where they, they would take the whole land anyway. So that's what the um, respect and honour is about. It's not quite a, a taxation, but it's still something that's owed. Okay, so there, um, there were a couple of reasons given above in verse 5 about why people should pay tax. Uh, one of them is to avoid punishment. Okay, if, you, if you don't pay taxes, you run the risk of getting in trouble and paying a fine or imprisonment. And also, as a matter of conscience. Those were the reasons that we're giving. That's why we also pay taxes. But in this next section, Paul also adds another reason. It's in verse 6, uh, because the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. This could also be translated, who are devoted to this very thing. And this very thing that they're devoted to it is, you guessed it, collecting taxes. That's what they're there for. So we've got to uh, make their job easy. Now, the bottom line, so to speak, is that we've got a responsibility under God to be those who do carry out God's will in this area and to pay our taxes. Uh, Even though it might be painful, it's the right thing to do. And it's in accordance with what Jesus taught. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, give to God's. we're made in God's image, we should give him our very lives, but we can give the tax that we owe. And there's some advantages of that too, it's good to have uh, roads and hospitals, schools and a defence force, so there are some benefits as well out there. So true heavenly mindedness is very practical at this point, and the application here, as you go home and think, what was the application point? Pay your taxes. And it'd be nice if Apple and Google and perhaps Facebook, some of those techie type Companies that make a lot of money, it'd be nice if they pay their little share as well. But the business end of the deal for us is we've got to look to our hearts. And this is first and f- foremost a message to us that we've got to pay ours. Okay, true heavenly mindedness also involves putting our faith into action with each other. I'll pick that up from verses 8 through to 10 if you're going to read with me. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. Now, just because Paul's referring to the law... It doesn't mean that he's bringing us back under the law, back under the old covenant. In Romans chapter 7, 1 to 6, Paul's argued that believers have died to the law. We're not under the old covenant. But by walking by the Spirit, people like you and I are enabled to love one another. And so the goal of the law can be fulfilled. And it is fulfilled when we do that. The law is good if it's used properly and Paul's using it properly here. He's saying these commands, if we carry out these kinds of things, that's actually a good society. It's a rich and wonderful society where people aren't stealing from each other and uh, not committing adultery or murder. That's actually a good society. These are good things. And if we love, we fulfil these things. It's interesting to note that Paul writes about debt and love in the same sentence... Loving in actions and not just words is going to involve settling financial debts. It's as simple as loving, loving your neighbour as yourself. How would you like it if somebody um, owed you money and they didn't pay it? Not much? I didn't think so. And so that's as simple as uh, loving your neighbour is to pay off the debts in the same way that you'd like someone to pay you back. And so true heavenly mindedness involves sorting out our debts and from time to time we hear sad stories, don't we, Though of Christians who are reportedly ones who don't pay their debts. From people who run car companies, you know, get a car repair and yeah, Christians didn't pay their debt. I don't like hearing those stories. Or Christian electrician didn't get paid by another Christian in the church. They're not great stories, are they, where we hear of Christians not paying their debts. I, I like the stories much better, the ones that say, yes, we, go and we do their work because they pay their bill, the right amount, and they pay it on time. They're Christian people. We're happy to do work for them because they do that. I think that's, that kind of reflects the approach of this passage, paying debts the right amount on time. It reflects well on what God's done in a Christian person's life. Hopefully we stand out a lot better from the world on that front. And that's the spirit of these verses. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Love's not always an easy thing to do, is it? It's not always to love those in our families, in our church. We don't always see eye to eye with everyone uh, in community groups that we belong to, sporting teams. Even uh, neighbours can be complicated sometimes, can't they? It's, it's tricky sometimes to love, isn't it? But the difference is, as Christians, that's the challenge for us, to keep, keep working at it, to keep sticking at it, not to give up. To be those who uh, let no debt remain outstanding except this continuing debt to love one another. So let's be among those who keep working at this continuing commitment uh, to love. That's what God calls us to do. Well, finally, true heavenly mindedness means that we'll be walking in the light. Now, as I go to PY camps, the kids always sing, Got to Get Walking, Walking in the Light. Uh, Luke Hutchins knows that great song. He'll be back to PY camp, Luke, sing Walking in the Light again. And I think they might get that song from passages like this. Let's have a read of verse 11 through to 14. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. ...because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies, which might be translated carousing, and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ... And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, Paul's engaging with this language of waking up from a sleep. It's interesting, isn't it, that transition when you're in a nice deep sleep and someone wakes you up and uh, you've got to then move from that slumber to being wide awake. And he's describing that as this movement from the old way of life that we might have lived to the the new life we've been called to. Since Jesus has died and risen for our sins, uh, we've got hope now. We've got this hope of a resurrection age. and we, Each day we live is a step in that direction. It's a step in that new life. So we live with hope, not like people who think that life's one darn thing after another. There's no meaning or purpose in it. No, we're not like that. We've actually got plenty to live for. And we live now in the light of that completed salvation at the end. Paul notes in verse 11, their salvation was nearer now than when they first believed. And we're a lot further down that track now, aren't we, friends? So we're a bit closer than they were. The age is described, this age rather, is described as the time when the night is almost over. But the new age of salvation, complete salvation, is the day that's almost here. And so now's the time to live out our calling as the people of God. That's where Paul starts to work with this imagery of uh, the night and day, and he starts to give a list of nocturnal activities. You see that's in uh, verse 13. These orgies, which is, um, plenty could be said on that, which we won't get into. Suffice to say, it seems to be bound up with religious practices of of, um, pagan gods that were worshipped in those those times. Uh, Drunkenness is pretty clear that we should avoid that. And this sexual immorality, the Greek word is koitus, and it's linked with debauchery, which has got to do with wanton uh, excess. It's the prodigal son stuff. He, he, he's living a life of wastefulness. And when this sexual immorality is combined with that word for debauchery, it's referring to gross sexual excess. And this is saying uh, that's not how God's people should be living. As Christians, we defend God's word, which is endorsing sex within marriage and not outside of marriage. The idea of even Christians living together but not married does not reflect God's will. And we've been confronted with this challenge to get a handle on God's will in Romans chapter 12, where we're told, let's offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and we'll be able to attest and approve of what His good will is. Well, we're starting to get a handle on what good's will is, and it's it's about sex within marriage. Paul also refers to Christians avoiding dissensions and jealousy. Some of these words are, are new to us, but dissensions are where disagreement leads to relationship breakdown, and jealousy is associated with negative feelings about what somebody else might have or have achieved. And so, in this part of God's Word, we're seeing some... Uh, clear ways to live, Paul encourages us to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ in verse fourteen, which seems to be akin with putting on the armor of light and so what we see here is this challenge to live a different way from the world the world doesn't it doesn 't bother the world to live in sin, but we 've been called to a different kind of life, a new life where we battle against sin that's why the word of armor is is appropriate there's a battle here there's a struggle we don't just let go and let god and live in sin no we forsake sin repent of it and seek to keep uh, making changes to grow more godly that's that's the challenge from god's word it's interesting how paul speaks about salvation being closer now and then he gives a list of ways that christians should be shaping up to live godly lives It's like there's an increased sense of urgency when you know what's coming next. It adds a bit more urgency in the present. And we're very familiar with with that idea, aren't we? When we know what's coming next, we need to sort something out now. If you know that you're going to have somebody over for dinner, you're going to feel the urgency to tidy the house. If you know that you're coming to church this morning, you know there's an urgency to get out of your pyjamas. And if you know that you're going on holidays... You know, it's time to sort out those lunch boxes so that nobody's left a banana in them to greet you when you get back. Otherwise, like at our place, you have to throw the whole lunchbox out. So if you know what's going to happen next, you take action. And that's what we're encouraged to do this morning. We know what's coming next. Salvation is coming, where we're going to be uh, living with the Lord face to face. We've got to live now in the light of that time. And Paul encourages us to live godly Christian lives which bring honour to God as we look forward to that salvation, that complete salvation that comes. Well, there it is, friends. Authentic Christianity is about true heavenly mindedness involving very uh, practical ways to live, submitting to the governing authorities, paying our taxes and debts to one another, walking in the light, not in the deeds of darkness, and feeling that sense of urgency to keep that on the boil as we move closer to the salvation that we receive. Let's um, close in a word of prayer and ask God to help us to keep uh, walking with him in that process. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to confess that we don't always uh, feel the sense of urgency about living godly lives. But Lord, we do um, pray that you forgive us for the times when we might be a bit tardy in uh, seeking to to grow in godliness. Lord, we pray that you'd help us uh, to think the right way about the world now that we've become your people. Help us to submit to the authorities that you've put in place. Help us to be those who do pay our taxes for your glory and honour and to to solve those debts we might have with one another in in the right way. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to avoid sin, not to just simply live in it, but to face it, name it, and forsake it, repent of it, and turn from it, and instead, Lord, help us to battle against it. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be conscious of um, the salvation that we're going to receive soon, and we pray that you'd help us to keep loving and serving you and walking with you as our Lord. We thank you for giving us this um, passage this morning and this encouragement, and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.